to CDS Insight Podcast presented by LSCSU China Development Society, featuring vibrant intellectual conversations among students, professionals, and entrepreneurs. Hello, and welcome to the CDS Insight Podcast. I am Elena, a second-year economic student from LSE. In today's episode, we will discuss education and real estate, with a special focus on China's education and real estate problems. We are in great honor to have with us today both Professor Carrie Brown and Professor Xiang Bao. Carrie Brown is a professor of Chinese studies and director of the Lao China Institute at King's College London. From 2012 to 2015, he was professor of Chinese politics and director of the China Study Center at the University of Sydney, Australia. Professor Brown has a Master of Arts from Cambridge University and a PhD in Chinese politics and language from Leeds University. Professor Brown also directed the Europe-China Research and Advice Network, giving policy advice to the European External Action Service between 2011 and 2014. He is also the author of almost 20 books on modern Chinese politics and has written for many major international news outlets. His research subject areas are history, international relations and international development. Moving on to Professor Shang Biao. Professor Shang Biao is a professor of social anthropology and fellow of St. Hughes College at the University of Oxford. Professor Biao grew up in Southeast China and was most influenced by the tense debate in 1980s China. He became interested in ethnographic research because of its attention to complexities that cannot be foreseen beforehand and has always sought to integrate anthropographic data into historical, institutional, and especially political economy analysis. Professor Biao is a visiting professor at the Hong Kong Institute um, for the Humanities and Social Sciences, the University of Hong Kong throughout uh, 2016. And he has also published articles such as How One Obscure Word Captures Urban Chinese Happiness and books such as Excerpts from Self as Method. Um, now, would you like to further introduce yourself, uh, both professors, the role you're in and your research interests before we start? I'm Professor Brown can go first. Well, I mean, the work I'm the particular work I'm working on currently is a history of European perceptions of China since the um, 17th century. So I'm looking at um, the Enlightenment period from uh, the kind of, I suppose, the, the beginning of the 17th century till the late 18th century, and the way that key intellectual figures in European uh, development, uh, Leibniz, uh, Montesquieu, and Voltaire. Uh, conceptualized China. Uh, they didn't visit China. They had very remote dealings with China, largely through mediations from Jesuit and sometimes Franciscan missionaries. But uh, they kind of had strong views. Uh, Leibniz was attempting to be objective. So he's the patron saint of people like me today who want to always just pretend that we can only see what we see without any value judgments, which of course is uh, you know, not very easy. <laughs> um, Voltaire, who was extremely uh, I, I'd say idealistic about China and felt that China offered a better uh, model for Europe. Um, and so he was very critical, of course, of the Catholic hierarchy in Europe at the time of his life. And Montesquieu, who was the architect of sort of this Oriental despotism model, which has been so influential, which um, you know we can see today. So I'm looking at this because I think that European views of China and Professor Xiang uh, uh, will probably be able to enlighten me on this. I, I mean, I still think that in Europe, we either idealize China or we demonize China. And you see that in our contemporary discourse 
And I think that has very long-standing roots that go back hundreds of years. Thanks. I just a quick update about myself. I have left Oxford and uh, I moved to Germany to join the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology. So that's a change of my affiliation. Yeah. And it's, uh, I really look forward to reading your book, Carrie. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. So when will it be out? Um, so I luckily have a sabbatical um, and I will hopefully be able to work on the source material now. The big pile of books behind me is going to have to be read in the next year. Um, but I think uh, it's really kind of inspired by how the discussion about China in contemporary Europe from Germany to UK, France has become, you know, very kind of polarized. Um, and it seems to be deeper than just because of the pandemic and Xi Jinping and, you know, this sort of sure. is a story that's been there a long time. And I just wanted to dig down mm -hmm. and see what, 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 where it came from. And it, it, it sort of, that's really what's inspired this, this sort of attempt. As a European who knows little about this history, it's been quite a revelation to read more about it. Yeah, it sounds really important a project, yeah. Thank you. Great, thank you for your introduction, professors. Um, we will now move on to the questions and we will have three questions for education and VSDs respectively. You are, however, more than welcome to discuss sectors outside of education and VSDs should you decide. And questions are open to the floor. So let's begin. China's private education companies had for years been the darlings of investors from New York to Shanghai, building a 100 billion USD industry on the promise of the world's largest and arguably most competitive schooling system. My first question to the floor is, why did tutoring in China become so popular? Is it an exploitation of parental paranoia or is it because of venture capitalists not wanting to miss out on investment opportunities? So I think the reason why it became so um, popular must be understood through the lens of the formal education system. So the tuition system, we know that in China uh, do not provide uh, the tuition like for extracurricular activities, right? I mean, that is a part of it, but the most important part, which really bring in profit is a part that helps students to improve their scores. So it's about the math, English, Chinese language and the physics if you're at the high school level. So the question is why um, parents uh, feel compelled to invest so much money to improve the score uh, of exam results? Um, the reason is in I mean, it, in, in some sense, it's a very straightforward. It's because uh, you know, in East Asia and China, particular private investment in education is always high, and uh, the competition is uh, uh, stiff. Uh, so therefore, you create a situation the inflation of uh, exam scores, and people have to put more uh, money for that. Uh, but then we have to look at the structural. Uh, specific structural condition that create such a situation. I think there's probably at least two important uh, characteristics. 
with the Chinese formal, educa formal education that we need to pay attention to in order to understand why education becomes so competitive to the extent that the people have to rely on these private tuitions. Number one is that it's very hierarchical. Uh, the Chinese education system, like universities are classified into different ranks. I mean, you know, they have this Jiubao uh, and Yao and all these uh, you know, different tiers. And within each province, they will copy the central method of classification, also create differentiation and different universities will receive different amount of fund and have different prestige, which directly affect the graduates' uh, job prospects after graduation. Then you go down to the high school, it is also very hierarchical and a certain high school will have a certain percentage of students who go to certain type of university. Again, you know, it's a replica of the hierarchy and the hierarchy goes down all the way to kindergarten, you know, which kind of kindergarten you should send your toddlers to may, I mean, that's a true, statistically it is true. It will determine how likely you can enter into certain type of university. So every step uh, becomes a, a, a battle, uh, you know, of competition with your peers and in order to be one step ahead of others getting into the desirable school. Uh, at the next uh, stage. So this hierarchicalization is, is number one reason. Number two, related to that is a homogenization. In the Chinese system, education is, of course, I mean, it's due to political reasons, is um, it's very unified in terms of method and the content and et cetera. But also in terms of public perceptions, you know, education is meant to serve one purpose and one purpose only that is to have a comfortable material life. <laughs> and, uh, and as a way of to, to achieve the material life is not, uh, I mean, it, it would be cynical already to say, oh, you know, you just want to learn something and pass good exam and in order to, uh, uh, to have a, a, a good life. But actually the reality is even worse because it doesn't matter what you learn. It even matters less what, whether or not you're interested in what you're learning. What matters the most is that you have to outperform your peers. The whole game is about eliminate your classmates. As long as you can win that game, then you can move on to the next step. So it's not about what you learn at all. And then uh, uh, the perception about the purpose of education is very, uh, homogenized in the sense that everyone shares this understanding, you know, what education is for. Therefore, you have very little space uh, for exploring different ways of learning and the different content of teaching. I mean, a good example, as we all know, the government has been uh, promoting vocational education for years. Uh, but uh, with very little impact and people still regard this narrowly defined academic uh, the study as the, the, the real thing, you know, you still want to go to the, the big university. So the entire nation uh, are drawn into a single uh, narrowly defined uh, competition game. And of course it became 
very fierce. And, and then how are you going to do that? I mean, you exhaust everything you can do within the school and that the parents have to rely on in the, the so-called services outside of school in order to push your kids forward. And that kind of demand uh, is, is of course created by this structure. And then, as you mentioned, the venture capital, they don't want to, of course, miss this opportunity. They see a huge uh, profit that can be made out of that. I mean, this is not unique in China. We know that in Japan, this uh, private tuition industry is also huge, ironically, as a result of the Japanese uh, government policy after 1980 to say, you know, it's end of catch up era. You know, our kids now should be relaxed. We have started too much. And now we should develop all other type of skills and et cetera. And so they reduced the, the level of teaching in schools, hoping that kids will enjoy life more. I mean, the result is opposite because the middle-class parents now rely on the, the private uh, schools in order for the, to learn more, in order to get a good university. Uh, so this also tells us that uh, if the entire system is remains so hierarchical, if the general understanding of the meaning of life, what a good life is, remains to be homogeneous, probably the problem will not be solved, even though you have this huge crackdown on the industry, yeah. Thank you, Professor Biao. That's a very comprehensive answer to the question. Um, what I'm getting from your answer is that you seem to be describing the Chinese education system to be a zero-sum game in which people have to outperform each other. And then this system has exhausted the children as well as the parents. And I particularly enjoy the part where you said what good life is um, if it's too homogenous. So can Professor Brown um, take on what take on the idea and further elaborate, please. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm the one person in this discussion who's probably not, not been through the Chinese educational system at some level. And so I'm a complete outsider. I, all I can say is, is in the 1990s, I taught at a Chinese university in Neimongu in, in Huahaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaohaoha
I mean, I get the sense in China that this is regarded as an important investment. And, you know, the amount of money that is invested in, for instance, students like yourself, uh, Miss Hu coming abroad, I mean, it's not, it's not an insignificant investment for many families. Um, and, but I don't know. I mean, it seems to me that the enormous amount of investment made by the government into education in China means in some subjects at some universities in China, there's world-class research now, I think, in some areas. And that's obviously a big change. So Beida, um, you know, Fudan, Tsinghua, they're really high, highly ranked in some areas. This is a big change. Um, but I don't know what, um, you know, the idea in Britain, the liberal idea, like Cardinal, you know, Henry Newman, the, the idea of a university was, you know, a, a place where you could learn to be a complete person, right? So you'd go and you'd study something specialist, but you would learn, you'd get a kind of, you know, general education. You'd be able to think about politics, literature, science, art, you know, you'd be kind of general. Um, so I don't know in what ways you get that if you go to a Chinese highly ranked university and whether you get it if you come, for instance, to Harvard or Cambridge or whatever. I mean, I don't know um, in what ways you get a kind of broad perspective. I'm sure that the Chinese system sounds like it's really good at rewarding specialization and tight focus. I mean, I, I think that's clearly, you know, what's happened. But I don't know what, um, in what ways it's, you know, better at the culture of education. Um, and this really comes to the sort of more political issue because, you know, obviously, education carries ideology. I mean, whether you like it or not, it carries ideology. And, um, you know, the view is that Chinese education is becoming more ideo ideological, but I don't know where, how that impacts on people's ability to, uh, you know, study particular issues. And I don't know what it means for, you know, the broad education that people get from university. And the final thing I'll say is that the the Western, so what I mean is European English language media coverage of the clampdown on private schools, you know, sort of evening schools in China, was interpreted as another sign of, you know, the Chinese government's repressiveness and clamping down. But actually, it's clear that there's another alternative explanation, which is it is a government clampdown on an overexploited you know, kind of over sort of um, expensive, out of control sector. I mean, it might be both. But I mean, the thing is that the only interpretation I saw in the, you know, media, English media was, this is yet another sign of the repression discourse, you know, the repression um, story. But in fact, it's, you know, equally likely that it's also, or maybe, um, just an attempt to regulate an unregulated, out-of-control sector, which any government would do. So, I mean, this is what I mean about European or American perceptions of what happens in China. Most of the time, we do have a habit of seeing what we're looking for. <laughs> you know, we, we want to we find what we look for. And I, I, I mean, I'm interested in whether, I mean, it sounds, from, from what you both said, what Professor Bounds, you said, it sounds like, there needed to be some kind of reform and regulation on this area. 
Um, and it sounds like the government's kind of done that, and it sounds like people wanted that. Um, I guess I would wonder whether it would be effective in the long term. You know, can you really be effective in this area? Thanks. Mm. Got it. Thank you very much, Professor Brown. Um, what you said reminds me of what a great man once said, and that great man is um, Ken Robinson. In his one of his, um, I think, tech talk. Um, named do, do Schools Kill Creativity, he mentioned that the purpose of education around the world is a protracted process of university entrance and that our education system is predicated on the idea of academic ability. So following from that, um, what is your opinion on why did the crackdown of education in China happen? Like, why did it happen? Is it to accommodate birth policies and address the uneven distribution of education prevention? Or is China confronting a looming demographic crisis and so the education crackdown is going to reduce the cost of raising children? Um, so with, uh, I Professor think Kara also, Shang, again, you know, like in a way, touched on this question, you know, why? And uh, the, the public media... In the West, Reddit is a repression. In it's uh, uh, try to control uh, the realm of thought, you know. But whether or not it's a, to try to 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 control a sector of economy, I mean, I suppose people in China probably will regard it as a matter of latter. Uh, uh, then I also then it's interesting the carries so your project about perception is a very fascinating. Then you, if you read the media reports in China, especially on social media, there are some very uh, uh, how to say the technically oriented analysis of the intention why they crack down, and that is uh, 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 what. Uh, uh, Elena just mentioned is about the demographic concerns. You know, people, as you, you we know, that the Chinese government is getting worried about the declining fertility rate, and they ask, okay, why you didn't want to give birth? Or because it's too expensive to raise children, and too stressful. Education is expensive, and then people say, oh, maybe that is a reason to. Uh, uh, make it easier to form family and raise uh, children in urban China at least. I mean, this I don't know because we don't see government policy that said that. I mean, the question of intention is always tricky to figure out. Uh, but that could be. I mean, there's certainly these two things that you know, uh, happen at the same time. There's a concern about demographic change and the the crackdown on education, but of course, the crackdown on education also take place at the same time as the crackdown on these tech giants and uh, real estate uh, 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 companies as well. Mm, so I guess what I want to say is that is is uh, I doubt this policy itself will really uh, change demographic trend. I'm afraid. Uh, that the news I want to convey to the Chinese government on the demographic front is bad news. It is very difficult to change. And actually, uh, China may be amazed by its own success in reducing fertility rate in the 1980s you know, through this one-child policy. Uh, but the demographers have told us again and again, it is easier to reduce fertility rate than to increase again afterwards, to reverse it, especially in the current uh, contemporary uh, context. And I think the only the, 
the 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 only thing that the government can do is to stabilize the fertility rate. Again, here in my view, a diversity of lifestyle is very important. You will have a, se a section of population who will not marry and who may marry, but will not have children. But then let's hope some sector of population may have multiple children. You know, they will have a, they will have a bigger families. I mean, this is what we observed in Europe as well. Somehow kind of you see the, the differentiation in terms of the family size. And either it's a single person household, or you still find some families that have four or five children. Uh, they choose to do that. I and mean, of course, we should have policy to support uh, the people who, who want to have a bigger family. I mean, that's good. But if we want to reverse the I mean, fertility rate, itself it's not easy. I don't think the policy itself will uh, um, work. Then the reason why crack down, uh, I feel that um, that is, a, I mean, the, the long-term impact of this policy still needed to be uh, analyzed. We don't know. I feel uh, there is, a, um, this is probably quite, seems quite, typical of the Chinese government behavior at this moment. They're very keen to make some systemic change because they see, okay, the education system as a whole is not working very well, as we mentioned earlier. Everyone agrees on that and people do feel that any small piecemeal change will not make a bigger impact. So therefore you do need a top down, big change, shake up. And yet, I feel that the government has not really figured out how you can change the core, the uh, uh, state education system itself, including what we mentioned, all this hierarchy and et cetera. So therefore they kind of go for um, the periphery, uh, you know, this, this, this private uh, tuition industry and start from there. Mm, that's okay, they, I mean, well, that is a little difficult. I mean, I don't know what the legal, I mean, whether or not there's a really legal ground or policy ground for such uh, a, a crackdown. Uh, I, I just don't know enough to make any assessment. And my view is that the existence of such industry probably is by and large legitimate. And a, what is the problem is the content. I mean, what kind of tuition they offer huh? and what is the purpose that is a problematic. But whether or not you want, we want to get rid of such a sector altogether, uh, I have a question mark there. But, the, the, but I guess my message is, uh, I mean, what done is what done, what is done. Uh, but if you just stop there, and if you don't touch the core uh, of the education system, I don't think the, the problem will go away. For, I mean, what is a core, as, as, as I mentioned then, Okay, so students now, you know, are not allowed to 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 go to the private school. I mean, the, the tuition classes after four o'clock. So, what are they supposed to do? Whether or not you create a alternative space and alternative pedagogy uh, for the society, for family, uh, you know, voluntarily explore different ways of learning, different ways of grow up. And, uh, so, and whether or not you can uh, to, to really reduce the, the, 
the hierarchical differentiation between schools and allow students of all kinds of talents to flourish, right? So that's, that's uh, 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 as also as, as uh, Carrie mentioned, whether or not you can reorient the, the, the fundamental purpose of higher education uh, uh, you know, away from this narrow uh, specialized technical education towards something else. And that would be be the be uh, be the core. To the final quick point, I mean, that was a very helpful. Carry bring in the comparative perspective. You know, the, the hierarchy uh, is also a very big problem in the West. Two points to be made. Number one, actually, uh, Chinese education become more hierarchical now, partly as a result of globalization, because now they take all this so-called Harvard and Stanford as a reference point, and they try to join the world. And there's a way to join the world is to make yourself more hierarchical. I mean, this is quite ironic as uh, a result of globalization. Number two is that there's a little difference between China and the West in terms of how education becomes hierarchy, hierarchical. For example, in the UK, a small sector of population are very keen to get into these private top schools and universities. The majority of people, of course, you know, realize there's a hierarchy but they are more or less uh, content with state education and they complain, but they, they, they don't make any special effort. You know, they think they must join this competition to go to this private elite university. But in China, the competition is a total game. Every family joined that. Everyone, you know, uh, 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 set an eye on this top few universities, the entire 1.4 billion. Uh, gaming, uh, aiming at the same thing. Then you can imagine there's no that type of differentiation in terms of the value. Everyone share same value and want to join this this competition. Yeah. Got it. Wow, that's a lot of points right there. Um, thank you very much, Professor Biao. Um, so. What do you think is the bigger picture under which education is subjected to crackdown? Are we looking at education crackdown from the perspective of President Xi's 14th five-year plan, which focuses on common prosperity? And would Professor Brown like to take the question? If not, Professor Biao can continue. Yeah, I can say a bit about that. I mean, I mean, it's got to be part of it because, you know, this is a leadership that uses the word comprehensive all the time. So you know, there's no area that it's not kind of um, trying to make changes. I mean, I think if you look at it, not politically, but just as policy challenges, um, the demographics, the issues of inequality, the issues of sustainability, the issues of needing to sustain, um, you know, growth through maybe consumption rather than manufacturing. I mean, these are not going to be... Um, solved one by one i mean the problem is you've got to kind of basically go in with a plan for the whole lot so you know i, I don't interpret the xi jinping era i mean personally i don't really buy into the neat myth of the autocrat i, I mean i'm sure xi jinping loves power i don't i don't doubt that what politician doesn't and i'm sure the chinese system um is probably one where you can centralize a lot i, I mean you know historically that's been proven but I think that the issues dictate the politics and the issues are not, you know, ones we don't know about. We've been thinking about demographic challenges since the 90s. We've been thinking about issues of inequality since since that time, too. 
Uh, we've been thinking about problems of the environment since the 2000s. So these policies, these, these problems dictate the fact that, you know, all at once, you've got to kind of basically have a plan for all of them. And, you know, you can't kind of solve one without solving them all. I mean, sustainability and demographics go together um, and, and all the others, inequality go together. So I kind of, you know, I think that that is why you've got the kind of politics that you have in China, because you've got this awareness, a very clear awareness of a set of problems that somehow need to be managed or solved. Now, um, the education sector, of course, is part of that because human capital, to use that you know, kind of awful phrase, human capital is obviously the great asset that China has. You know, it's not the old story of you know, plentiful labor for manufacturing. No, that's not where you're going to get strong, high growth or, or good growth now. It's going to be in producing knowledge, producing innovation, technology, you know, dual circulation is reliant on China being uh, technolog technologically as autonomous as it can be. Um, <clears throat> you know, China does not want to be dependent on America or Europe because of political issues. So I think um, you want to produce world-class, uh, you know, education for your citizens so that they then become economically much more, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, powerful as um now, I mean, the philosophical assumption which we make in Europe is you can't do that without a lot of, you know, kind of freedom of expression and freedom of thought. It is clear that the Chinese government doesn't agree with that. And it thinks you can certainly have good quality research, but you maintain certain ideological parameters. Now, again, I um, would, would have once said that I can't see how you can do that. But I, I kind of really don't know now because I think that wherever you go, you've got ideology, right? I mean, I've got ideology at King's College London. I mean, there are all sorts of complex debates that you can't get involved with without public costs. <laughs> Universities, wherever they are, are very political. It doesn't matter where they are. In the United States, in Europe, they are very political. People don't agree on their function. They don't agree on what they should do. So... I think that's just the same in China. It's just clearly there are very, very clear areas where the government is not going to allow interference. Um, finally, the education sector anywhere is not one that people willingly allow foreigners to come into, to be honest. I mean, the UK um, only has one private university, for instance, I think Buckingham University. Um, I think maybe there's, there's the University of the um, Arts maybe in London, but I mean, you know, Buckingham's the only big private university. It's, it is a highly regulated sector. Anyone knows who tries to start a new degree, you know, a new degree course from a new institution or, or who, who tries to get a new institution to have the power to issue degrees knows the amount of regulation is absolutely huge. So there's no way that the Chinese education system will not be deeply regulated. And I don't see, um, you know, in the past 15, 20 years ago, when Nottingham and New York and other universities went to China, they had aspirations to really kind of, you know, move in and do lots. 
And I think that period is long over. This is going to be a tightly regulated. So I don't know about the politics because that can change, but it will continue to be a tightly regulated area. And the final point is, you know, I remember when I lived in Japan for about a year in 1990, um, coming immediately from a British background, I was fascinated by juku schools, you know, night schools. And I could just never work out what would kids do, you know, at four o'clock to finish school and then start school again. This seemed to me crazy. So, I, and I don't know, you know, so if I think of maybe people my same, you know, the same age as me who went through the, Jap the Japanese system, uh, with that cramming school, you know. Um, I don't know whether in the case of Japan, you could say, did that really benefit, you know, the educational levels? I mean, you know, it's a big, big question. Um, South Korea, I believe, also has a really tough entrance exam. I mean, these have huge costs on children, um, on their mental health, on, you know, suicide rates, on how people are left behind. You know, broadly, the British system in the past was okay in saying 7%, 8% can succeed well, and the rest, you know, just do what you can. I remember once being told 25%, you know, you really know that they'll do fine no matter where you put them. 50% will kind of be okay, but they'll need a bit of help. 25% at the bottom take all the resources because, you know, there's, there's just, they're just, um, they think in a different way. They don't really have academic interests. They have other interests. And if you have an education system that creates one level, you're going to have a problem because a lot of people are not going to really want, I mean, they're not going to do well in that system, even though they have things to contribute. So I think, you know, any education system needs to diversify. And I, sympathize with the Chinese government in a way because I can't think of any system that I would look at and say was was really work, working well. Maybe, um, you know, I, I don't know, the German system sort of with the you know, gymnasium, maybe. Uh, maybe the French system, I don't know. But, I mean, the British system, I think it's an elitist system. I've appreciated it. I've got a lot from it. I, I've taken the BBC online survey, I'm, are you an elite? I'm definitely an elite. I'm right up at the top, you know. I mean, education, you know, work, um, you know, socioeconomic background. Yep, they, they give you that label. So for people who do well, I think in the, they're fine. But I think it's probably not good for a lot of people. It lets people down. And I can't think we haven't solved it. Uh, if China solves it, great. Uh, it's not easy, really not easy. Thank you for listening to the Insight Podcast. To learn more about China Development Society, follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and WeChat.